Chapter Three of Theophrastus Such by George Eliot. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Josh Middledorf. Chapter Three How We Encourage Research. The serene and beneficent goddess Truth, like other deities whose disposition has been too hastily inferred from that of the men who have invoked them, can hardly be well pleased with much of the worship paid to her even in this milder age, when the stake and the rack have ceased to form part of her ritual. Some cruelties still pass for service done in her honour. No thumbscrew is used, no iron boot, no scorching of flesh, but plenty of controversial bruising, laceration, and even lifelong maiming, less than formerly, but so long as this sort of truth-worship has the sanction of a public that can often understand nothing in a controversy except personal sarcasm or slanderous ridicule, it's likely to continue. The sufferings of its victims are often as little regarded as those of the sacrificial pig offered in old time, with what we now regard as a sad miscalculation of effects. One such victim is my old acquaintance, Merman. Twenty years ago, Merman was a young man of promise, a conveyancer with a practice which had certainly budded, but, like Aaron's rod, seemed not destined to proceed further in that marvellous activity. Meanwhile, he occupied himself in miscellaneous periodical writings and in a multifarious study of moral and physical science. What chiefly attracted him in all subjects were the vexed questions which have the advantage of not admitting the decisive proof or disproof that renders many ingenious arguments superannuated. Not that Merman had a wrangling disposition. He put all his doubts, queries, and paradoxes deferentially, contented, without unpleasant heat, and only with a sonorous eagerness against the personality of Homer, expressed himself civilly though firmly, on the origin of language, and had tact enough to drop at the right moment such subjects as the ultimate reduction of the so-called elementary substances, his own total skepticism concerning Manetheo's chronology, or even the relation between the magnetic condition of the earth and the outbreak of revolutionary tendencies. Such flexibility was naturally much helped by his amiable feeling towards women whose nervous system, he was convinced, would not bear the continuous strain of difficult topics, and also by his willingness to contribute a song whenever the same desultory charmer proposed music. Indeed, his tastes were domestic enough to beguile him into marriage when his resources were still very moderate and partly uncertain. His friends wished that so ingenious and agreeable a fellow might have more prosperity than they ventured to hope for him. Their chief regret on his account being that he did not concentrate his talent and leave off forming opinions on at least half a dozen of the subjects over which he scattered his attention, especially now that he had married a nice little woman, the generic name for acquaintances' wives when they are not markedly disagreeable. He could not, they observed, want all his various knowledge and Laputian ideas for his periodical writing, which brought him most of his bread, and he would do well to use his talent in getting a specialty that would fit him for a post. Perhaps these well-disposed persons were a little rash in presuming that fitness for a post would be the surest ground for getting it, and on the whole 
and now looking back on their wishes for merman their chief satisfaction must be that those wishes did not contribute to the actual result for in an evil hour merman did concentrate his attention he had for many years taken into his interest the comparative history of the ancient civilizations but it had not preoccupied him so as to narrow his generous attention to everything else one sleepless night however his wife was more than once narrated to me the details of an event memorable to her as the beginning of her sorrows after spending some hours over the epoch-making work of grampus a new idea seized him with regard to the possible connection of certain symbolic monuments common to widely scattered races merman started up in bed the night was cold and the sudden withdrawal of warmth made his wife first dream of a snowball and then cry what is the matter proteus a great matter julia that fellow grampus whose book is cried up as a revelation is all wrong about the macrodumbras and the zuzumotsis and i have got hold of the right clue good gracious does it matter so much don't drag the clothes dear it signifies this julia that if i am right i shall set the world right i shall regenerate history i shall win the mind of europe to a new version of social origins i shall bruise the head of many superstitions oh no dear don't go too far into things lie down again you you have been dreaming what are the madicojumbras and tzutzotsums i never heard you talk of them before what use can it be troubling yourself with such things that is the way julia that is the way wives alienate their husbands and make any hearth pleasanter to him than his own what do you mean proteus why if a woman will not try to understand her husband's ideas or at least to believe that they are of more value than she can understand if she is to join anybody who happens to be against him and suppose he is a fool because others contradict him there is an end of our happiness that is all i have to say oh no proteus dear i do believe what you say is right that is my only guide i am sure i never have any opinions in any other way i mean about subjects of course there are many little things that would tease you that you like me to judge of for myself i know i said once that i did not want you to sing o ruttier than the cherry because it was not in your voice but i cannot remember ever differing from you about subjects i never in my life thought any one cleverer than you julia merman was really a nice little woman not one of the stately dians sometimes spoken of in those terms her black silhouette had a very infantine aspect but she had discernment and wisdom enough to act on the strong hint of that memorable conversation never again giving her husband the slightest ground for suspecting that she thought treasonably of his ideas in relation to the magicodumbras and zuzumotsis or in the least relaxed her faith in his infallibility because europe was not also convinced of it it was well for her that she did not increase her troubles in this way but to do her justice what she was chiefly anxious about was to avoid increasing her husband's troubles not that these were great in the beginning in the first development and writing out of his scheme 
Merman had a more intense kind of intellectual pleasure than he had ever known before. His face became more radiant, his general view of human prospects more cheerful, foreseeing the truth as presented by himself would win the recognition of his contemporaries, he excused with much liberality their rather rough treatment of other theorists whose basics was less perfect. His own periodical criticisms had never before been so amiable. He was sorry for that unlucky majority whom the spirit of the age or some other prompting more definite and local, compelled to write without any particular ideas. The possession of an original theory, which has not yet been assailed, must certainly sweeten the temper of a man who is not beforehand ill-natured, and Merman was the reverse of ill-natured. But the hour of publication came, and to half a dozen persons described as the learned world of two hemispheres, it became known that Grampus was attacked. This might have been a small matter, for who or what on earth that is good for anything is not assailed by ignorance, stupidity, or malice, and sometimes even by just objection? But on examination it appeared that the attack might possibly be held damaging, unless the ignorance of the author were well exposed and his pretended facts shown to be chimeras of that remarkably hideous kind begotten by imperfect learning on the more feminine element of original incapacity. Grampus himself did not immediately cut open the volume which Merman had been careful to send him, not without a very lively and shifting conception of the possible effects which the explosive gift might produce on the too eminent scholar effects that must certainly have set in on the third day from the dispatch of the parcel. But in point of fact, Grampus knew nothing of the book until his friend Lord Norwall sent him an American newspaper containing a spirited article by the well-known Professor Sperm N. Whale, which was rather equivocal in its bearing, the passages quoted from Merman being of a rather telling sort, and the paragraphs which seemed to blow defiance being unaccountably feeble, coming from so distinguished a cetacean. Then, by another post, arrived letters from Butzkopf and Dugong, both men whose signatures were familiar to the Teutonic world, in the Zetzen Erzeichenten Monatschrief, or Hayrick for this insertion of split hairs, asking their master whether he meant to take up the combat, because, in the contrary case, both were ready. Thus America and Germany were roused, though England was still drowsy, and it seemed time now for Grampus to find Merman's book under the heap and cut it open. For his own part he was perfectly at ease about his system, but this is a world in which the truth requires defense, and specious falsehood must be met with exposure. Grampus, having once looked through the book, no longer wanted any urging to write the most crushing of replies. This, and nothing less than this, was due from him to the cause of sound inquiry, and the punishment would cost him little pains. In three weeks from that time, the palpitating merman saw his book announced in the program of the leading review. No need for Grampus to put his signature. Who else had his vast yet microscopic knowledge who else his power of epithet? 
this article in which merman was pilloried and as good as mutilated for he was shown to have neither ear nor nose for the subtleties of philological and archaeological study was much read and more talked about not because of any interest in the system of grampus or any precise conception of the danger attending lax views of the magicodumbras and zutumotsis but because the sharp epigrams with which the victim was lacerated and the soaring fountains of acrid mud which were shot upward and poured over the fresh wounds were found amusing in recital a favorite passage was one in which a certain kind of sciolist was described as a creature of the walrus kind having a phantasmal resemblance to higher animals when seen by ignorant minds in the twilight dabbling or hobbling in it first one element and then the other without parts or organs suited to either in fact one of nature's impostors who could not be said to have any artful pretenses since a congenital incompetence to all precisions of aim and movement made their every action a pretense just as a being born in doe-skin gloves would necessarily pass a judgment on surfaces but we all know what his judgment would be worth in drawing-room circles and for the immediate hour this ingenious comparison was so damaging as the showing of merman's mistakes and the mere smattering of linguistic and historical knowledge which he had presumed to be a sufficient basis for theorizing but the more learned cited his blunders aside to each other and laughed the laugh of the initiated in fact merman's was a remarkable case of sudden notoriety in london drums and clubs he was spoken of abundantly as one who had written ridiculously about the magicodumbras and zutsumotsis the leaders of conversation whether christians jews infidels or any other confession except the confession of ignorance pronouncing him shallow and indiscreet if not presumptuous and absurd he was heard of at warsaw and even paris took knowledge of him Monsieur Cachelot had not read either Grampus or Merman, but he had heard of their dispute in time to insert a paragraph upon it in his brilliant work L'Orient au point de vue actuel, in which he was dispassionate enough to speak of Grampus as possessing a coup d'oeil presque frangé in matters of historical interpretation, and of Merman as nevertheless an objector qui mérite d'être connu. Monsieur Pompès, also availing himself of Monsieur Cachelot's knowledge, reproduced it in an article with certain additions, which it is only fair to distinguish as his own, implying that the vigorous English of Grampus was not always as correct as a Frenchman could desire, while Merman's objections were more sophistical than solid. Presently, indeed, there appeared an able extrait of Grampus's article in the valuable rapporteur scientifique et historique and merman's mistakes were thus brought under the notice of certain frenchmen who were among the masters of those who know on ancient oriental subjects in a word merman though not extensively read was extensively read about meanwhile how did he like it perhaps nobody except his wife for a moment reflected on that an amused society considered that he was severely punished but did not take the trouble to imagine his sensations 
Indeed, this would have been a difficulty for persons less sensitive and excitable than Merman himself. Perhaps that popular comparison of the walrus had truth enough to bite and blister on thorough application, even if exultant ignorance had not applauded it. But it is well known that the walrus, though not in the least a malignant animal, if allowed to display its remarkably plain person and blundering performances at ease in any element it chooses, becomes desperately savage and musters alarming auxiliaries when attacked or hurt. In this characteristic, at least, Merman resembled the walrus, and now he concentrated himself with a vengeance. That his counter-theory was fundamentally the right one, he had a genuine conviction, whatever collateral mistakes he might have committed, and his bread would not cease to be bitter to him until he had convinced his contemporaries that Grampus had used his minute learning as a dust-cloud to hide sophistical evasions, that in fact minute learning was an obstacle to clear-sighted judgment, more especially with regard to the Magicodumbras and Zuzumotsis, and that the best preparation in this matter was a wide survey of history and a diversified observation of men. Still, Merman was resolved to muster all the learning within his reach, and he wandered day and night through many wildernesses of German print. He tried compendious methods of learning Oriental tongues, and, so to speak, getting at a marrow of languages independently of their bones, for the chance of finding details to corroborate his own views, or possibly even to detect Grampus in some oversight or textual tampering. All other work was neglected. Rare clients were sent away, and amazed editors found this maniac indifferent to his chances of getting book parcels from them. It was many months before Merman had satisfied himself that he was strong enough to face round upon his adversary, but at last he had prepared sixty condensed pages of eager argument, which seemed to him worthy to rank with the best models of controversial writing. He had acknowledged his mistakes, but had restated his theory so as to show that it was left intact in spite of them. And he even found cases in which Zephius, Microps, Scrag Whale the Explorer, and other cetaceans of unanswerable authority were decidedly at issue with Grampus, especially a passage cited by this last from the greatest of fossils, Megalosaurus, was demonstrated by Merman to be capable of three different interpretations, all preferable to that chosen by Grampus, who took the words in their most literal sense for 1. The incomparable Saurian, alike unequaled in close observation and far-glancing comprehensiveness, might have meant those words ironically. 2. Motsis was probably a false reading for Potsis, in which case its bearing was reversed. And three, it is known that in the age of Saurians there were conceptions about the Motsis which entirely removed it from the category of things comprehensible in an age when Saurians run ridiculously small. All which views were godfathered by names quite fit to be ranked with that of Grampus. In fine, Merman wound up his rejoinder by sincerely thanking the eminent adversary, without whose fierce assault he might not have undertaken a revision in the course of which he had met with unexpected and striking confirmations of his own fundamental views. Evidently Merman's anger was at white heat. The rejoinder being complete, 
all that remained was to find a suitable medium for its publication. This was not so easy. Distinguished mediums would not lend themselves to contradictions of Grampus, or if they would, Merman's article was too long and too abstruse, while he would not consent to leave anything out of an article which had no superfluities. For all this happened years ago, when the world was at a different stage. At last, however, he got his rejoinder printed, and not on hard terms, since the medium, in every sense modest, did not ask him to pay for its insertion. But if Merman expected to call out Grampus again, he was mistaken. Everybody felt it too absurd that Merman should undertake to correct Grampus in matters of erudition, and an eminent man has something else to do than to refute a petty objector twice over. What was essential had been done, the public had been enabled to form a true judgment of Merman's incapacity. The magic odumbras and the Zuzumosis were but subsidiary elements in Grampus's system, and Merman might now be dealt with by younger members of the master's school. But he had at least the satisfaction of finding that he had raised a discussion which would not be let die. The followers of Grampus took it up with an ardor and an industry of research worthy of their exemplar. Butzkopf made it the subject of an elaborate Einleitung through his important work Die Bedeutung des Egetischen Labyrinthes, and Dugong, in a remarkable address which he delivered to a learned society in Central Europe, introduced Merman's theory with so much power of sarcasm that it became a theme of more or less derisive allusion to men of many tongues. Merman, with his magicodumbras and zuzumotsis, was on the way to become a proverb, being used illustratively by many able journalists who took those names of questionable things to be Merman's own invention. Than which, said one of the graver guides, we can recall few more melancholy examples of speculative aberration. Naturally, the subject passed into popular literature and figured very commonly in advertised programs. The fluent Loligo, the formidable Shark, and a younger member of his remarkable family known as Escatolus made a special reputation by their numerous articles eloquent, lively, or abusive, all on the same theme, under titles ingeniously varied, alliterative, sonorous, or boldly fanciful, such as Moments with Mr. Merman, Mr. Merman and the Magical Dumbers, Greenland Grampus and Proteus Merman, Grampian Heights and their Climbers, or the New Excelsior, they tossed him on short sentences. They swathed him in paragraphs of winding imagery. They found him at once a mere plagiarist and a theorizer of unexampled perversity, ridiculously wrong about Pozzi's and ignorant of Polly. They hinted, indeed, at certain things which to their knowledge he had silently brooded over in his boyhood and seemed tolerably well assured that this preposterous attempt to gainsay an incomparable cetacean of world-wide fame had its origin in a peculiar mixture of bitterness and eccentricity which, rightly estimated and seen in its definitive proportions, would 
furnish the best key to his argumentation. All alike were sorry for Merman's lack of sound learning. But how could their readers be sorry? Sound learning would not have been amusing. And as it was, Merman was made to furnish these readers with amusement at no expense of trouble on their part. Even burlesque writers looked into his books to see where it could be made use of, and those who did not know him were desirous of meeting him at dinner as one likely to feed their comic vein. On the other hand, he made a serious figure in sermons under the name of Some or Others who had attempted presumptuously to scale eminences too high and arduous for human ability, and had given an example of ignominious failure edifying to the humble Christian. All this might be very advantageous for able persons whose superfluous fund of expression needed a paying investment, but the effect on Merman himself was unhappily not so transient as the busy writing and speaking of which he had become the occasion his certainty that he was right naturally got stronger in proportion as the spirit of resistance was stimulated. The scorn and unfairness with which he had felt himself to have been treated by those really competent to appreciate his ideas had galled him and made a chronic sore, and the exultant chorus of the incompetent seemed a pouring of vinegar on his wound. His brain became a registry of the foolish and ignorant objections made against him, and of continually amplified answers to these objections. Unable to get his answers printed, he had recourse to that more primitive mode of publication, oral transmission or buttonholing, now generally regarded as a troublesome survival, and the once pleasant, flexible merman was on the way to be shunned as a bore. His interest in new acquaintances turned chiefly on the possibility that they would care about the Magicodombras and Zuzumoses, that they would listen to his complaints and exposures of unfairness, and not only accept copies of what he had written on the subject, but send him appreciative letters in acknowledgment. Repeated disappointment of such hopes tended to embitter him, and not the less because after a while the fashion of mentioning him died out, Allusions to his theory were less understood, and people could only pretend to remember it. And all the while, Merman was perfectly sure that his very opponents, who had knowledge enough to be capable judges, were aware that his book, whatever errors of statement they might detect in it, had served as a sort of divining rod, pointing out hidden sources of historical interpretation. Nay, his jealous examination discerned in a new work by Grampus himself a certain shifting of ground which, so poor Merman declared, was the sign of an intention gradually to appropriate the views of the man he had attempted to brand as an ignorant impostor. And Julia, and the housekeeping, the rent, food, and clothing, which controversy can hardly supply, unless it be of the kind that serves as a recommendation to certain posts. Controversial pamphlets have been known to earn large plums, but nothing of the sort could be expected from unpractical heresies about the Magicodumbras and Zutumoses. Painfully the contrary. Merman's reputation as a sober thinker, a safe writer, a sound lawyer, was irretrievably injured, 
the distractions of controversy had caused him to neglect useful editorial connections, and indeed his dwindling care for miscellaneous subjects made his contributions too dull to be desirable. Even if he could now have given a new turn to his concentration and applied his talents so as to be ready to show himself an exceptionally qualified lawyer, he would only have been like an architect in competition, too late with his superior plans. He would not have had an opportunity of showing his qualification. He was thrown out of the course. The small capital which had filled up deficiencies of income was almost exhausted, and Julia, in the effort to make supplies equal to wants, had to use much ingenuity in diminishing the wants. The brave and affectionate woman, whose small outline, so unimpressive against an illuminated background, held within it a good share of feminine heroism, did her best to keep up the charm of home and soothe her husband's excitement, parting with the best jewel among her wedding presents in order to pay rent, without ever hinting to her husband that this sad result had come of his undertaking to convince people who only laughed at him. She was a resigned little creature, and reflected that some husbands took to drinking, others to forgery, hers had only taken to magic adumbras and zuzumotsis, and was not unkind, only a little more indifferent to her and the two children than she had expected he would be, his mind being eaten up with subjects, and constantly a little angry, not with her, but with everybody else, especially those who were celebrated. This was the sad truth. Merman felt himself ill-used by the world, and thought very much worse of the world in consequence. The gall of his adversary's ink had been sucked into his system and ran in his blood. He was still in the prime of life, but his mind was aged by that eager monotonous construction which comes of feverish excitement on a single topic and uses up the intellectual strength. Merman had never been a rich man, but he was now conspicuously poor and in need of the friends who had power or interest which he believed they could exert on his behalf. Their omitting or declining to give this help could not seem to him so clearly as to them an inevitable consequence of his having become impracticable, or at least of his passing for a man whose views were not likely to be safe and sober. Each friend, in turn, offended him, though unwillingly, and was suspected of wishing to shake him off. It was not altogether so, but poor Merman's society had undeniably ceased to be attractive, and it was difficult to help him. At last the pressure of want urged him to try for a post far beneath his earlier prospects, and he gained it. He holds it still, for he has no vices, and his domestic life has kept up a sweetening current of motive around and within him. Nevertheless, the bitter flavor, mingling itself with all topics, the premature weariness and withering, are irrevocably there. It is as if he had gone through a disease which alters what we call the constitution. He has long ceased to talk eagerly of the ideas which possess him, or to attempt making proselytes. The dial has moved onward, and he himself sees many of his former guesses in a new light. On the other hand, he has seen what he foreboded, 
that the main idea which was at the root of his too rash theorizing has been adopted by Grampus, and received with general respect, no reference being heard to the ridiculous figure this important conception made when ushered in by the incompetent others. Now and then, on rare occasions when a sympathetic tete-a-tete has restored some of his old expansiveness, he will tell a companion in a railway carriage or other place of meeting favourable to autobiographical confidences what has been the course of things in his particular case, as an example of the justice to be expected of this world. The companion usually allows for the bitterness of a disappointed man, and is secretly disinclined to believe that Grampus was to blame. End of chapter 3 of Theophrastus Such. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain.